Good evening, everybody. It's great to see all of you here, uh, especially on a Wednesday night. How about that? Um, my name's Spencer. I'm one of the guys on staff here. I lead our student ministry if we haven't met. Um, and I'm excited and I'm honored to be here tonight. I really feel like God has a word for this community tonight. I'm honored and privileged to share that for a few minutes uh, with you all. So if you, would you join me in inviting him together into our time uh, in prayer? Heavenly Father, uh, we ask you tonight, uh, would you soften our hearts? Uh, would you soften our ears, Lord? And would you uh, help us to hear your word to us tonight, Lord? We thank you for being a God who speaks, a God who calls us back to him. Uh, we are so excited to be a part of your community, a part of your kingdom. So tonight, Lord, will we start anew? Will we, will we see you differently, more clearly, Father? And will we be refreshed by your word? We ask this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said... So just about all of us have had goldfish as pets growing up, yes? Most of us. I'm not sure they really qualify as pets because there's really not a lot of interaction there, right? There's maybe a little bit of like pouring food in the bowl once a week. Um, but nonetheless, most of us at some point have had a little goldfish to take care of in a bowl, whether as a parent or as a kid. Um, and we do that because we like, you know, they like the bright colors or our parents wanted to teach us something about responsibility or uh, maybe we won it at a carnival, right? And mom and dad couldn't say no, so we just took it home anyways. Um, but at some point, whether it's two weeks or whether it's two years later, and I actually did have a carnival goldfish live for two years, if you can believe that, um, the dreaded day comes. You come in, and you find Freckles the fish belly up. Now, parents, if you see this first before your kids, right, what do you do? Flush it, right. A lot of us would say, okay, I'm going to flush it. I'm going to go to the pet store. I'm going to buy a new one, and we're going to get it, and they'll never know, right? Or if you're like my parents, you know, when I saw it and I freaked out because our fish, you know, had, had gone away, they said, well, we're just going to flush him. He's going to go play with his friends in the ocean, and that's what, that's what the toilet does, and he's just going to have a great life. He's just graduating. <laughs> so take that for what it's worth. My question for us tonight is, why do we put ourselves through this? Why do we, when it comes to the loss of a loved one, whether it's as small as a goldfish or as tragically close as a parent, why do we try and find just about any way possible to avoid the subject of death? And my opinion is, I think, deep down, it's because in the heart of every human being, believe it or not, there's a feeling that death was never supposed to be part of the picture. If you have a Bible with you tonight, I'd invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. If not, the words will be on the screens. We're going to read a lot of scripture tonight. Uh, Just heads up on that. It's going to be awesome. So we're going to read Genesis 2. We're going to start halfway through verse 4. Genesis 2 verse 4. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, skipping down, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of Life And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Skip down to verse 15, if you would. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, For when you eat of it, you will surely, what? Die. Many of you know this story, right? God creates a good world, free from anything painful or negative or futile. 
And then he puts us as humans right in the middle of it. And our job is simple, to live with God and tend for the created world he made as his image bearers. And to make the earth fruitful, right? That's our commission. Make the earth fruitful, tend it, take care of it, bring the best out of the created world and fill the world with more people by, well, you guys know how that works, but the bottom line is we were made to enjoy God, enjoy the world he made, enjoy the companionship of other humans and represent him well to creation and to one another. Now, God didn't make us because he was lonely, because he was bored or something like that. He made us because he wanted us to participate in his joy. And I don't know about you, but I often forget the fact that, in my opinion, I think we serve a happy God. Have you ever thought about it that way? I think especially in church, right, God takes on this domineering or very serious personality, and there are absolutely aspects of his character that are awesome and powerful. But I think more often than not, God's in a good mood, right? God's the most joyful being in the universe, and he made us so that we could share in that joy with him. But if you haven't noticed, we're five pages into a very long book, right? There's a whole lot more to the story. So let's keep reading. If you jump ahead to Genesis 3, we're going to start in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil." When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. If you would skip down to verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. This is God speaking. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, this should sound familiar. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. When my wife and I were getting ready to graduate from college, uh, sometime in the spring of that year, I had a really bad week. Really bad week. On Friday, I went from feeling completely normal, completely healthy, to getting an entire wing to myself in the student health center within two hours. I was so dehydrated, they couldn't even get an IV in my veins because they were too small. Became so weak, they had to put me in a wheelchair just to get to my car. There were ambulances and paramedics there waiting to take me to the ER if it got any worse. And then, almost as suddenly as it came on, 
it left. I was weak. I was really freaked out, to be honest, the next morning, but I was okay until Monday. On Monday morning, I woke up thinking the worst was behind me, only to discover that what I had thought the night before was simply an ingrown hair on my leg was now the size of my thumb and was growing. By noon, it had doubled in size. The health center thought I had gotten shingles, which is, which is rough, so they got me a prescription for that. But by 5 p.m., it had doubled in size again, and now I'm starting to get worried. By the time I left my evening class at 7 p.m., I was red from the shoulders up. I was dizzy. I was, like, glowing, right? My, my eyes were red. My face was red. My neck was red. I was starting to run a fever, and now I'm starting to get really concerned. This was definitely not shingles. Before I knew it, I was in the ER, hooked up to an IV antibiotic all night, getting treated for what they call MRSA, which, if you don't know, is a strain, a potentially fatal strain of staph infection. It would be over a week of daily tests and some serious medicine before I actually beat that infection away. And I tell you all that to say that for the first time in my life, more than once during this week, I came face to face with the reality that someday I'm going to die. When we were created... We were made in the image of a perfect God. And we lived in a state of innocence. But when Adam and Eve ate that fruit, they did more than just disobey a command of God. They fundamentally changed the fabric of human existence. Now, because of that, the joy of childbearing is marred by serious pain and struggle. Now the joy of work is marred by toil and sweat and futility. Now the fundamental position of the human heart is rebellion. It's not intimacy with God. Now the joy of living is marred by the reality that life doesn't last forever anymore. And what I think is so interesting is that we now live in a culture that refuses to acknowledge death. Have you noticed that? In the old days, and I mean the old days, uh, you used to have to walk right past the cemetery to get into church every Sunday. When your family member died, It was your responsibility to take care of burial preparations. Most people, if they wanted meat for dinner, had to literally go and take an animal's life to eat, right? I mean, death was, and in many areas of the world, it still is an integral part of human life. But today, in this culture, unless you hunt or work in a hospital, death's just an idea. Death's something that happens to other people. And it's something that we really just don't want to talk about. The fact of the matter is we have fooled ourselves into thinking that we are beyond death, that we're past it. And there are countless companies and products that encourage you and I to live as if death is never coming or if it can be avoided. Or worse, if we ignore it long enough, it just won't happen. But that's just not true. Our decision as humans to believe the lie that God doesn't truly know or want what's best for us led to our fall from innocence And it led to the introduction of sin and death into the world. Not just for us as humans, but for for everything in creation. Paul says all creation groans, waiting for its release from the bondage that it's been subjected to because of us. Guys, here is the deal. Death, death was not part of the plan. 
death was not part of the plan. Death, to be honest, is an unnatural thing that God hates. God never intended for it to be a part of the world he created. But our choices and the choices of our ancestors have created the world that we now live in. However, unless you think tonight is all about doom and gloom and the Zika virus, there is still more to the story. So, if you still have a Bible with you, turn ahead. We're going to spend some time in the book of Romans as we wrap up. If you're hurting there, Romans chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 12. <coughs> Excuse me. Romans five twelve says this. It says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death, right, through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sins, skip ahead to verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, meaning Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace in the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Pay attention to this last verse. He says, Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. So, what's Paul saying here? I want you to notice how in verse 18, he makes note of one trespass, right? He uses that phrase over and over again, one trespass. And that's simply another way for him to refer back to that fateful moment in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and eat from the tree of which they were commanded, you shall not eat of it. And Adam, when I look at him, sometimes I want to go like, hey, man, you had one job, right? Like, you had one job. But I got to imagine, like, that's a tough thing to be remembered for, right? Like, your whole life reduced to one phrase, and it's your worst failure, right? But Paul, who's way more mature than I am, keeps going. He says this. He says, but the one act of righteousness was justification that leads to life for all men. Now, this is something you may not have noticed. We skipped over it earlier in Genesis. But God himself says at the end of Genesis 3, verse 22, I don't know if you've seen this before. He says, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And he trails off. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? God in his infinite wisdom, infinite foreknowledge, knew that if we never died, if we ate from that tree and were given eternal life, yet we were still in our sins, there would be no hope for us. We'd be forever trapped in our sins. I want to ask the question, is it possible that even death, which breaks the heart of God and goes against everything he wanted for his creation, has a purpose? Is it possible that nothing, even death and sin, can escape the power in the ultimate plans of God? And so often when we look at this verse, right, we talk about 
that one act of righteousness, we look at, there's two words in the end of that phrase, justification and life, and we look at the word justification way more often in church, I think. We love to talk about how Jesus took on the sins of the world, paid the penalty that you and I could never have, even on our best day of moral living, and imparted to us his perfect righteousness. Because of the cross, because of that one act of righteousness, as Paul says, the fundamental orientation of the human heart has been turned from a rebellion to intimacy once again. The problem of sin, as we call it, has been dealt with. We are no longer stuck relying on our own goodness or our own righteousness to be made right with God. We can lean on the perfect righteousness of Christ. But I'm not so sure that we in church world focus quite as much on that second word, which I think deserves equal emphasis, that word life. You see, there's an inexorable and an essential relationship between sin and death. These aren't just two bad things in a world full of disappointment. No, the scriptures tell us that sin, sin is the cause of all things evil in this world, including death. Diseases, injustice, hurricanes, tornadoes, drought, war, racism, slavery, cancer, the list goes on and on. Sin itself lies at the very root of all of these things. Because if it's true, the creation, all of it, fell with us when we sinned and disobeyed God, then the fallen world we inhabit, the world isn't the way it was supposed to be. But the story goes on. Let's take a look. Skip ahead if you're still in the Bible. We're going to look at Romans chapter 8. So just three chapters to the right. Paul says this later. He says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the, our adoption as sons for the redemption of our bodies. Do you guys see the picture that Paul's trying to paint here? He's saying our hope in Jesus is first and foremost rooted in the forgiveness of our sins. But the implications of that, the implications of that are huge. Not only are we declared righteous forever, but if sin truly does lead to death, and sin has been defeated by the cross, then death also has been defeated by the cross. And not just our death, but this, this entire system of death that this world has been trapped in, that will finally be liberated. That will finally go away. You guys see that this means that our faith in Christ, it doesn't just pardon us. It empowers us to live a life where we can bring the kingdom of life into a world that's marked by death. Why did God kick us out of the garden before we ate of the tree of life? It's because he knew that only through death, specifically through the death of Jesus, the Son of God, upon a cross, that the power of death itself could be broken. Jesus, by willingly laying down his life and dying in our place, Jesus has defeated death. This is why Paul again can write in 1 Thessalonians 4, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or grieve like the rest of men who have 
no hope. In the midst of a world where death surrounds us every day, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not, whether it's far away or it's right in our own family or sometimes it's right in our very own lives, Jesus' death and resurrection gives us hope. Because this hope that one day when all things are made new, that we'll get to live in a world free from pain, a world free from suffering, a world free from the reign of death. One day when all things are made new, we'll get to live a life that's more joyful, more fulfilling, more real than anything we've ever experienced in this lifetime. South Suburban, as we begin the season of Lent tonight, looking ahead towards the empty tomb, know this. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you have sinned, but you've been made right. Know that you are dust, and to dust you will return. You and I will die someday. But know this, death, death no longer has the last word. And one day, because of Christ's victory, you and I will stand our bodies free from flaw, free from decay, on a new heaven and a new earth before our King and rejoice with a joy that's unspeakable for the age of death is gone and the age of life will be here to stay. But until that day, we hope and we bring that hope, that real, that tangible hope with us into a world that's desperately lacking it. As we come forward to receive the imposition of ashes on our foreheads, meditate on the reality we have sinned, we will die, but that's not the end of the story anymore. Let's pray.